With a whole stadium racially chanting Vinicius Jr. recently in a game in Spain, me and Haz dive in to racism, how much it still exists and what we need to do. I hope you're sitting comfortably because this is about to get uncomfortable. <laughs> This is 115 Miles with Josh Connolly and Hassan Kaya. We hope you're sitting comfortably because this is about to get uncomfortable. Hassan, we are live, mate, in a different and new studio today. Yeah. I turned up in Bow. I don't know if I've ever been here. But it felt like a homage to your early days, right? It That's did, what you're gonna man. Say. It looks nothing like I was expecting to see like <laughs> groups of lads huddled on the corner spitting bars. <laughs> I'm sure you can still get that I'm somewhere. I'm such a tourist yeah, in London. Man, I know. Uh, middle class. It, yeah, is, it, is, is that new to be middle class in Bow, by the way? I don't know. I was listening to Wiley on the way here uh, as a what, result. Just to get you warmed up? Just because it made me think I'm going to listen to him. He's the godfather, mate. Yeah. Any? Have you read that book yet? No. That I bought you. Have you about read it? No. I have, have read, read it. What, all of cover. it. All yeah. of it. I actually finished this book. Fuck off. I, I did. I did. No, I don't believe you. It's good. I don't believe you. You've read every chapter front to back. Chapter and verse, front to back. Lots Wiley. of trips to Ayanapa, back beefs. It's good. You should read it. We didn't know at the time, yeah, that we were in. We were part of such a big movement. Are you? Are you do you mean me and you, or just no, me, man? You uh, weren't part of the movement. No. Nah. I was What's that him. club you used to go to? Bruno. Yeah. It no was, rooms. Mate, Bru Heartless Crew, which is in that book, innit? Yeah. Mate, they were the days, man. And Wiley and Dizzy have probably produced the greatest set of all time. Have you heard the, the Wiley and Dizzy? You haven't heard it? Where, at Brunel Rooms? No. A side, is that a Sidewinder? I don't think it's Brunel. Oh. But it's them two. Mate, I've got to show you it afterwards. It's on YouTube. Okay. It's the greatest set of all time. Going to spit a couple of bars from there? Uh, I can do the whole thing. Back <laughs> to back, can. Wiley and Dizzy's. But well, you have to me. beat Ed's Angels rendition, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, good. You got here all all right then, mate. To Bo, is it hard for you to get here? <laughs> what are you talking about, man? This is my end, kind of. It's all northeast. It's like, you know, that's where I grew up. Is this near where you grew up? It's not that far. Yeah, it's not that far. Did you ever venture into Bow? Did you ever have like a... I lived in Leighton for a while, so that's just outside of Stratford. It's not too Did you far. have like wars with these people? Oh, what, manner? postcard wars? Yeah. I wasn't that kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. I can see you like try not to laugh too hard because you're... I've got you're... sore lips, man. So every time I'm going to really try and make hurts. you laugh, man. Uh, well, I've got no worries on that front. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so how are you doing, mate? Let's start. Let's start with the bit of the check-in. Actually, um, the way that I'm going to do the check-in today is a little bit different. I want to give you a little bit more, um, so that I can get a little bit more out of you. Um, so with the check-in, I want you to tell me one thing that you struggled with. Let's start there. One thing that you've struggled with in the last week or weeks gone by. Struggle's a hard word, isn't it, really? like, like No, it's not. It's really easy, mate. It just means that you fucking found it difficult. I'd, well, I just glide through life, Josh, you know. <laughs> um, struggled. I think the thing I've struggled with is, um, 
Well, if I go back to the start of the year, what, you know, I've talked about the pyramid of priority. And, you know, for me, I decided that what I needed to do was really focus on three things. And the top of top priority for me for this year was sleep because yeah. I haven't done that before. And I think that was the cascading effect to like a lot of the change that I've had this year, which has been brilliant. I said, the thing I've struggled with is maintaining that, you know, so it's easy to get to the top, but it's hard to stay there. Right. So yeah. I think, um, everything was going really well. But then as I've got a bit busier, as I've started to let a few bad habits creep in, I might be scrolling like TikTok or Instagram a bit later than I should. So I'm firing up my sort of dopamine a bit later than I would. I'm sleep. So that's probably had the thing that's had um, the biggest effect for me because it's not the lack of sleeping, which is one thing. It's the sort of the knock and effect of not having a good night's sleep, which um, is something that I just need to nip in the bud. And that might sound a bit trivial, but when I've, attributed so much of my positive change to that and kind of you know the clarity that you get from it i think that's the thing that sort of crept in a yeah, little bit do you, genuine question do you ever meet many people who put these systems in place and then live by them all of the time no no and i'm not sort of beat myself up for letting, i know you're not yeah. like i've pushed you to answer the yeah. to answer the question yeah. no but that's something i was thinking about even outside of the question it's like for me um that's an important part of the identity that I want to create moving forward. It isn't just, oh, I just want to do a little bit for a little while. It's an important part. So actually it's in these moments where it starts to drift a little bit, you've got to put the effort in. It's a bit like saying, you know, like for every sort of ordinary Joe on the street, they're going to have those dips, but the, I don't know, elite athletes in their prime, the elite athletes, they have to keep showing up. Yeah. To form those habits, you have to keep showing up even when you don't want to. Yeah. And oh, so the knock on effect as well is what I was doing is sleep, um, having good sleep. But then the following morning, I'd get up around quarter to six, do my workout. And that has had a bit of an impact on my sort of desire to get up and do the workout. So there's definitely been days where I had planned to get up and I thought, oh, I'm too tired, so I'm not going to do it. And, that, and so I've just, what I, where I was doing like four, five workouts in a week, that's the last couple of weeks is sort of drifted to two, three, maybe, you know what I mean? So it's yeah. definitely having an impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's TikTok feeding you at the moment, videos-wise? I've been watching this guy, um, Mizzy, go, like, he's been blowing up, but basically uh, he uh, he um, was doing pranks where he walked into someone's house in Hackney and then it blew up. And so then what you do is, you, you, because you've watched that video, you then get people commenting on videos. So that's what seems to be happening on TikTok. Yeah, you mentioned him. You know what TikTok's feeding me at the moment? WWF circa 1995 to 2005. Did you, right. I don't know what, where it's from, where the clips are from, yeah. but it is all like Stone Cold Steve Austin, yeah. The Undertaker. They're all sat around Mick Foley. They're all sat around the table talking about how shit went down. Like podcasting, video podcasting. Oh, so and them now, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And th these TikTok things, it, ke it keeps feeding me them, yeah? And they're long videos. Some of them are like five, 10 minutes long, maybe even a little bit longer. Yeah. And they'll talk about, do you remember, um, mate, this is going off topic a little bit. Do you remember The Undertaker against uh, Mankind, Hell in a Cell? With all the pins and all that. You're talking to me like I was a big fan. Was you not a big fan of wrestling? A bit earlier, a bit earlier than that. Oh, uh, Ultimate man. Warrior, Hulk Hogan. They were talking about how bad big a wrestler man. the Ultimate Warrior was. Yeah. So I didn't realize- He was, he was proper jacked, wasn't he? On, yeah, yeah, on, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then he, there was a documentary of it on Netflix back yeah, then, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I went to school dressed as him once. I think I've told you that before. 
when I was about seven, I went fancy I dress at school. You with... could still get away with it, couldn't you? Oh, I got the body, mate. Yeah, <laughs> you got the hair <laughs> and the painted face as well. But they were talking about how like unscripted a lot of it was. So it wasn't real, but they would have um... what the moves, like the the fights. Yeah, so they wouldn't be too orchestrated. It would be, you know, if it was like me and you, they would say Hass needs to win at the end. And it's going to be a, oh, we want you to fight for four or five minutes. And then they would go out and they would know each other's moves and all of that. But it wouldn't necessarily be like, I'm going to throw you against the rope and then you'll pirouette and all that sort of You're stuff. You're joking. Because it, no. it always looked really choreographed. Like, yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. No, but if it looked choreographed, it's just, they would say that they were bad wrestlers. So, you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah. So he got, you know, DDT when they pick you up, put your yeah, head yeah, yeah. and drop down on the knees. Yeah. He was fighting Owen Hart. I've got another story very quickly. I've got to tell you about that in a minute. Uh, and he paralyzed. He went paralyzed. He did the DDT on him and he was like, I, my head slipped down a bit too far. And he was like, he went to, he was supposed to get, go to finish me. And then I was going to roll him over and beat him. Yeah. He said, and as he come near me, I had to say, don't touch me. I can't move anything from my neck down. Uh, so then Owen, and they showed a clip, yeah? And then yeah. Owen Hart's like walking around the ring, g up the crowd. And he's like, he's just giving me time to get back. And, and then he said, I just about managed to get the energy to roll him over and they showed it. It was a really bad rolling him over to win. And he's like, and I had to change the type of wrestler I was. I was acrobatic till then. And then he became like the brawler with the knee brace. Yeah. Uh, when Owen Hart died, you know, he died. Yeah. So Owen Hart was a wrestler on one of the SummerSlam things. He was supposed to come down from the ceiling and the thing he snapped halfway down and he fell and died in the ring. Oh really? Yeah. And they fucking, they showed cause it was on live on TV this is mental, right? This is all true. This is not like, this is like true happened. They played the rest. They, they went on with the show and they showed this on TikTok. I was watching. Yeah. So they're like, he keeps going to the commentator and he's like, Owen Hart is in a bad way. He's in the ring. He's, they're doing CPR on him now. This is not part of the act. This is real life. I don't know what to tell you. We will be continuing with the show. And then they get Owen Hart out. It goes to an ad break. And then the back it comes back and he says, before we go into the tag team match, just coming up next, uh, I hate to be the bearer of this news, but I have to tell you that Owen Hart has died tonight. And then they carried on with the show, mate. No. That's Vince McMahon, isn't it? That is mental that they did that. How? That's crazy, isn't it? Sorry, right, so I'm gonna do you think our w listeners can switch on again? <laughs> mate, that was... Uh, I didn't realise you were like a major fan. Fucking mega, mate. I was yeah. mega when I was younger, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Went to SummerSlam 92 at Wembley. Right. And one thing... <laughs> you what, just can't stop. I can't, man. One thing that you're... There'll be a lot... By the way, you'll be surprised how many people... No, I was talking oh, I, about it. Yeah. Kinnan Carter, yeah. I was there. Yeah. Loads of people there were yeah. talking about it. Yeah. Um, and one thing that you're worried about, this coming uh, week or weeks. Whether the rest of this podcast is going to be about WWE <laughs> or not. <laughs> um, what am I worried about? Um, I am worried about a lack of, mo not enough momentum in our business. And um, there's a lot to do. And it's just, you know, it just take things like take longer than you think. And even when you plan for them to take longer, they take longer and mm. I'm somebody that wants results quickly. And so I've just got to like, you know, figure out the right, the right thing. I'm also somebody that l loves to generate loads of ideas. Um, cause I think, okay, well maybe that's the idea that's going to do it. But the problem with that is you've got to really, you know, manage your resources and time when you're a small team, small business. So that's it. It's just 
like getting the momentum and we're at that point where we're putting a lot of energy into something which is us trying to drive our digital side of our business and it's just about kind of you know getting that momentum and really pushing and yielding on the investment that we're getting so really that's that's really the thing that's on my mind more than anything and is your the fact that you're going on holiday because i forced you to go on holiday. yeah yeah thanks uh, my, my, ch my children are very grateful yeah 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 they, they can thank me later mate they can thank me later does that affect that no not really will you switch off completely when yeah you're on holiday yeah phone off out of office on yep definitely. no checking emails at all I might check emails. You've got to check a minute. Yeah. I'm I'm not, I, I could pretend on here that I'm not going to check my emails, but it's what gives me peace. It will keep my anxiety down if I just go, oh yeah, that's fine. I'm not going to do any work. I'm not going to jump in. I'm not going to do any Zoom calls. None of that rubbish, but I'll keep an eye on it. And also, I'm addicted to email. There you go. Yeah. No, you've said that before, I think. Yeah. You said that like last that's, week. Yeah. You, you can't have yourself. I've got to feed my addiction. <laughs> yeah. So I can send you emails, mate, if you want. If oh, you no, want. yours. If you, if you, if you yours go straight in the bin. If you ever need a fix, I can forward you some of mine to answer if you want. Uh, I do that anyway, don't I? <laughs> there's no fix. I actually, there's a lady on uh, Instagram who I follow, Brit Frank, her name is, I think. Um, but I saw her talking about, she said she's just written a book, right? And she was being asked about the book and how she got on writing it. And she said something on there that I, I bang buy into, yeah. And she was like, I don't buy into this work-life balance myth. She was like, it's a myth. She's like, you don't do anything that you love and passionately do it and do it in a completely balanced way. She was like, so when I was writing the book, when I was sprinting, I knew that I'd be up late sometimes writing it and I allowed myself to sprint. And she's like, and I would try to even things up as much as I could. But the idea that your life is ever going to be balanced, especially if you're doing something that you love, is unrealistic. Yeah, I think it's it's easier to justify when it's that, when you're doing stuff you love or it's your passion or it's your business, right? In a way, it's when you're trying to seek out work-life balance when it isn't, you know, your thing that you're building, right? Yeah. So it's a noble... It's a noble course to try and get better balance. But I do, an old boss of mine used to talk about work-life integration. And actually, so instead of saying, oh, I need to be downstairs and, you know, create boundaries here, you might say, oh, for me, I'll do emails in front of the telly with a glass of wine and chatting. You know, for some people that works. Yeah. For others, they need the hard stop. For give me a headache thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, just too, Trying to too be much doing stimulation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I talk about inclusion. As in like, don't try and find balance in life, just make sure you're being inclusive. So like if you've done too much of one thing for a long time, you don't have to try and balance it up. You don't have to pretend that if you've worked your ass off for four weeks, that you need to make sure that you're downtime for four weeks. Do you know what I mean? Just make sure that if you are working to the wire, that you're being inclusive and trying to create some space for that other stuff. Inclusive, what does that mean in well, this you're, context? You're, well, you're including all of the aspects of your life that you know need to be there. So from an emotional standpoint, from a kind of, if you're talking about work-life balance, yeah, family, social, and work, you're never going to balance them all out perfectly and get them to this place where it's like, I do 75% this. And, yeah. Yeah. So just yeah. being, make sure that you're being inclusive in, in, in that like, and that's what I try and do. I don't go, fuck man, I've done a whole week smashing it out where I've hardly seen the kids. Next week I'm going to do, I have to make sure that I do loads of like, making sure I'm with the family loads and loads and loads necessarily. But the next week I'll be like, I need to make sure I'm including my family time appropriately in this week. Do you, do you understand yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I think so balance, the, the metaphor that comes to my mind on balance is a seesaw, right? If I yeah. do this, then I need to do that, right? 
what you talked about and the and metaphor I used to like uh, like giving is uh, like a graphic equalizer, you know, like an equalizer on a stereo, take yeah, the yeah. bass up, the treble down, the higher, you know what I mean? And so actually adjusting the levels is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And because you do that, you probably never feel like you need to do the seesaw. No. And that's why it's really important to adjust the levels rather than feel like you get to that point where you go, right, I've got to do, you know, a whole week of the opposite of what I've just done. And that makes sense because last week was obviously Mental Health Awareness Week, right? So yeah. my, uh, like this is the, in terms of my check-in, um, I, I was flagging last week with all of the stuff that I deliver. Now I know it's that week and so I always block it out and we like, as a family, we know that it's like, I'm going hard. I'm a bit of a write-off that week. But towards, I can see how burnout can come, like come from people. You you couldn't work like that every week. Like I worked, I yeah. was proper at breaking point by the end of the week. Is that, is that because of the kind of work you were having to do or was it because of the hours you were putting in? No, the, the work that I have to do. Yeah. Like it was all emotive. Yeah. Like the stuff that I was doing with um, Border Force earlier in the week was like really emotionally taxing. And then, it was late nights and staying out and I hate staying out. I don't sleep when I stay out. Especially um, when you're staying on someone's couch, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I've even, I've got to stay in Manchester this week and um, I've got to stay there because I've got to be there early on the Thursday for an event all day that's at a hotel. And I've booked at a hotel just around the corner rather than booking in the hotel that I'm delivering in. Because case I see anyone. You don't want to bump into anyone, yeah, man. any yeah. delegates. Last thing I need, mate. Last thing I need. And last thing I would need in the morning when I go down for my breakfast, yeah, knowing that I've got to deliver a session in an hour or two and I want just a bit of headspace is to fucking bump into someone. And then you have to do breakfast together. Oh, my days, man. You know, that's why I like being in London because the chances of bumping into somebody that I know is quite slim. I always bump into people I know. What, in Tottenham, mate? <laughs> <laughs> do you really yeah bump into people that you know it's really weird it's like that serendipity thing where you uh, it's because it's so big and the likelihood of you you know crossing each other as you're walking down the street is so slim but it always seems to happen to weirdest me. place you bumped into someone you know i don't know oh fucking hell oh, come on mate it's not that hard of well you answer it because you obviously have a uh, story you know, in trefelli fountain is it trefelli fountain in right Rome? i bumped into someone i used to play football with oh, wow yeah Great beat story. That. Fucking beat that. What are you, and, what are you worried about? Uh, what am I worried about? Um, so inner you starts in two weeks. Yeah. Uh, and so that means like going into June and stuff, I've got to work a lot of evenings. I don't like working evenings, man. Um, and so like, I find that quite emotionally taxing because I recharge when I'm at home with my family and I do my processes in the evening. Yeah. And because of breathing space as well, it means that there's a few, a couple of evenings every week from June, like pretty much every week for six weeks, I'm working in a couple of evenings in the, in the, uh, during the week. Yeah. So for, that, uh, for how long? Six Just June. Week. Oh, six, six weeks. weeks. Yeah. 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 And what, what's on the other side of that? Uh, nothing till no, like no, September. Yeah. yeah. So like I've got a project that I'm working on that I'll be working on that where I've actually had to clear the diary. Yeah. Pretty. Yeah. Uh, massively, so yeah. which I'm excited about. What I do know about those spaces is as taxing as they are, and as much as you're not an enjoying the thought of it going into it, I know in the moments and what you what you get out of it is so powerful, like the space that you create 
And even though you've done it several times now, most of that group will be experiencing it for the first time. Yeah. And that's really powerful. Yeah, and it is. It's one of them things, yeah, that I am often like, oh, I've got, it's in it. Like, I'll be like, it's in a U tonight and it's eight till half nine, yeah? Yeah. At night. So, because I try and do it so that people can join, put the kids to bed or whatever and and and, and are able to join it in time. Um, so there is a bit like, oh, I've got, it's in a U tonight. I can almost be a bit like, oh, I've got to do that tonight. And then every time without fail, when I finish it, I'm like going up, waking Leah up. I'm like, it's in a U is so like, it is the best thing that I do when I'm actually delivering it. Just in an ideal world, I'd love to do it at midday every day. I think, um, I think that's been the, the real, the real transformation of you and your business and what you're doing in the world. Like I think the corporate work was brilliant and obviously, you know, and continues to be and that that's really important. But, you know, moving into this space aligned with what you're doing kind of on, on your social platforms and stuff like that, I think it's really, really defined or defi setting a defining moment for you and your work and like the impact that you're having. I get a lot more freedom because I always say that the corporate work that I do is essentially healing work. I take healing work into the corporate space and I, you know, it's res resilience work and all, you know, call it whatever. I, 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 I like when I'm being like completely candid, I say to people, if I'd have started now, I would, I would probably be doing burnout stuff, but it would be the same thing. Yeah. Which is healing work that yeah. I call burnout because that's kind of how the game works. Right. And I'm, you know, I'm not stupid or, you know, I, I, I'm honest enough to kind of admit that, but it's healing work at the end of the day. But yeah, you know, there's only a certain amount of it when it's complete freedom and it's my own course my own programs that i'm developing then i can really get people to do like unapologetically to do the work that i know that can be life-changing yeah and you show up more more authentically you don't you then yeah then yeah i think i mean i think i do that in the corporate space but i get more freedom to like be a bit more who i am a bit sweary it's and a bit, a bit sweary ranty yeah. if i yeah. feel like i want to be yeah. talk about wwe for 15 minutes wwf mate Oh, I was going to just say, do you call it WWF? I weren't watching when they lost the court case that they should never have lost. You they don't are, like animals then? Don't, pardon? You don't like animals. I love animals more than the humans. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, mate, it's WWF. Right. That was good, mate. Um, okay, so we're going to do this deep. We're going to do this deep question, actually. Uh, have you come up with an answer for this? What's the question? Fucking hell, mate. Um, it's someone's 18th birthday and they've been sent to you for advice to prep them for adulthood. What are you telling them? You haven't thought about it. Have you? Uh, no, I have. Um, honestly, I think um, the best advice I can give to somebody is to show up and authentically be yourself. Mm. And if I break that down, for me, I spent so much of my life considering myself to be a failure up until that point even through that point, I was probably at the peak of it, like, because I was just, I just kind of found out that I hadn't got A-levels that I needed to get into university. And that's all I'd been conditioned to do. So then I, you know, I'd always played this role up in this, uh, you know, as I was going through school, I was the joker in the class because I wasn't able to apply myself academically. The reason I wasn't ap applying myself academically is because I, you know, I, I wasn't, um, conditioned to learn in that sort of you know in that sort of environment and so in a in an elite school I fell behind very quickly so for 
me, I had to, I was playing different, you know, different versions of people that I thought wanted me to show up in a particular way. And so um, what I've learned through life experience, blood, sweat, tears, pain, you know, lots of fails, some wins as well, is those moments where I've been happiest, where I've had most success, that's led me to be able to kind of build free businesses, build a team, work at the highest level in terms of, you know, corporate work, uh, my corporate roles, is just being myself, just yeah. showing up being myself. And myself is the culmination of lots of different parts, as you and I have always talked about. Mm -hmm. so it's not just one self, one authentic self, it's many selves. And it's just listening to your intuition. And you will find yourself sometimes in a room where you're questioning yourself and the voices you, will be in your head will be going really noisily in your head, telling you to show up in a different way, to act like the, the, another person that you're seeing up on stage or you know, carrying themselves in, in, in a particular way, if they're an alpha character or something like that. And the instinct will be to just emulate them because you'll see other people just emulating them. And so you will think, in order for me to be successful, I need to emulate them, but actually, like really listen to yourself, really listen to your strengths, your intuitions and play those out. And um, sometimes they will uh, take a while for you to really find your voice, yeah, yeah. who you want to be. So that would be my, the advice I give. Yeah, you know, for me, if, if I was speaking to an 18 year old to give them advice, I, like the one thing that I would say is that you can always start again whenever you want, yeah? I would say to them, I wouldn't even get too bogged down worrying about a career at 18. I'll be like, go and enjoy yourself. Try and get a job, earn a bit of money, go traveling, stay at home with your parents if you can, for as long as you can, so that you can go out and live your life, do everything that you need to do. Because I think like, in some ways we get people at 18, it's like, right now you need to think about your career. And I think you don't, I don't think you do. I think you should enjoy yourself until you're at least mid twenties, at least. Um, because I think I didn't start what I'm doing until I was 30. And I worked in a factory up until I was, until then, right? So I started again then. I, I, I honestly think you should, life is for living and you should go out. Like I tell my kids, for example, my daughter's nearly 17. I'm like, she's going to Reading Festival this year. She's booked to go on holiday next year. She wants to go traveling. I'm like, go do that shit, man. Like, I still don't really know what I want to do with my life. Do you know what I mean? At yeah. the age of 30. And sometimes I think we get too caught up in chasing success and it's like, once you have kids, yeah, the whole fucking thing changes. What, you know that, yeah? Once you have kids, the whole game changes. It's all downhill. It's fucking all downhill. <laughs> There's that bloke who's doing quite well online with his content at the moment. Have you seen him? He's, I don't know who he is. He's famous for something else, but he keeps talking about he never wants kids and it looks horrible. What would you say is the perfect age to have children? Um, don't give me a naff answer where you go, well, if you're in love and you're ready, then no. I was going like, to give you that. I was, just trying, I was taking a minute to think age. about it. Don't take a minute. I reckon around 29, 30, 31. That's yeah, all, man. Post-30. Yeah. Definitely yeah. post-30. Yeah. If you can help it, one of the greatest bits of advice I would give you is don't have kids until after 30. When you were 16. I had... <laughs> Five by the time I was 30. Wow. wow. I actually think I might have had six. I had kids at eight, one child at 18, one at 19, one at 21, one at 22, one at 28, and one at 30, I think. Man. And. Shit. It's been a long And life. you'll be young when, you know what I mean? That you'll be young and there'll be like 
adults with yeah. you. And that's that's quite fun. Like I think um, being a young parent is hard, but then you reap the rewards, hopefully, on the other side of it once the only, they're through. The only through thing the that I would say, is. yeah, is like, and we're talking optimum here. So don't, like, I am not saying that young parents are bad parents, yeah? I was a young parent. Some of the most amazing parents in the world are young, right? And all that sort of stuff. But I'm talking like in a hypothetical land where we're looking for the optimum. Like, I really think if you can go and live your whole life, do everything that you want to do, yeah? Like Leah, my wife, she did that. When did that? She did everything that she wanted. She was very ready to settle down. Then there was no like, oh, I never got to do that, or I never got. To. She did it all, and then was ready. And I think our kids, her children, will benefit from that. Yeah, I think like you know, a lot of people start really, really early, jump into it, and I didn't have the patience. I ain't got much patience now with my kids. I'd like to have more at thirty-five, but. You know, I certainly didn't have the patience in my early 20s that I have now. And that's not true for everybody. But I certainly feel like in an ideal world, this fucking like, you know, with the way that you can travel around the world and stuff now and really enjoy life, people should go and really, really do that. And then, you know, when you're really ready to settle down, then do that. Yeah. Do you, I mean, just going back to what you were saying around at 18, just go and enjoy life, have fun. Don't worry about not having the answers. Do you think most 18 year olds, I know some will be thinking, oh, I need to have all the answers. And there's for some, there'll be a lot of pressure to know what they need to be doing at 18 because of the kind of academic route they might need to take at university if they're going that way or whatever. But do you think most 18 year olds are actually just doing that, having fun, like, and thinking about going out and doing, like not thinking about like, what, what, what do I need to be? doing with the rest of my yeah, life. Yeah, probably. Most yeah. 18 are. And I think we should fucking let them. That's, yeah. I guess that's kind of my point. Well, sometimes yeah. we don't, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, when I was doing my GCSEs and that, and they gave you, did you get that little red book, the record well, of We talked about this before. Oh, yeah. No, no, we did. They did, we did, like, they did all that sort of shit and made you feel like, you know, if yeah. you fail in these couple of years, your yeah. life's going to be a mess. Yeah. And I it, mean, I think that was definitely, you know, that was definitely true of what how I felt coming out because, you know, we were told basically this is it. This is your only pathway. And so all of my mates were going on that pathway and I wasn't. So obviously what do I walk away feeling like, okay, well, I'm not going to amount to anything. And everyone, all the teachers basically said that. You're what not really told you you'd never amount to anything? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, let's go give them the, give them the yeah. Vs to the camera. <laughs> um... um but what I tell you what, another thing that I wish I'd known at 18 that I didn't know going in was how credit worked. Yeah. Mate. Did you get in debt when you say Massive. Massive. Like, I remember I had a virgin credit card. Yeah. And they wrote to me and was like, if your bank account is struggling, you can write yourself a check and put it in your bank account. And I lit so I, I can't remember. I had a couple of bags of sand on this credit card. I just fucking wrote the whole thing and stuck it in the bank straight away. Jesus, man. like I honestly, man, I was like, I was about seventeen grand in debt at twenty four. Yeah, I can't remember how much it was, but I was in debt because you just you you go, oh, all right, um, I'll go out on this, and then I'll go, oh, I need a bit of food, but then you go, okay, well, I can afford M and S food now, right? Yeah, boom, 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 boom. Pay and then before you know it, yeah, they banned them, I think. Didn't yeah, I'd never got into that fucking yeah, I did I did yeah, a lot of them cards. lucky I chopped my toes off and uh, got a payout and managed to clear all of my debt wow you almost did though right well I almost didn't uh, yeah. yeah but we talked about that yeah right Has, let's jump into today's topic we've got quite a bit of time to explore it um, I recognise that if you're listening to this because this is we are recording a week before 
to let the listeners know this may in a week's time be sort of old news, but the conversation that comes out of it, uh, I think is evergreen. Um, so I wanted to explore what has happened with, um, Vinicius Jr., the Real Madrid football player. Um, he was once again the target of racism at Real Madrid's match against Valencia on Sunday. He was met with racist taunts before getting off the team bus. And then the crowd um, were directing chants of mono, which I hope I'm pronouncing right. Well, I don't care if I am actually. Spanish for monkey uh, at him um, in the 1-0 loss. Yeah. Um, what's your like first in initial sort of feelings on that when I, when I tell you that. What do you mean my initial feelings? Well, when I say that this has happened to you, uh, this has happened to Vinicius Jr. When you first seen that this had broke, he was sent off, I guess is, is, is an important point to make. He yeah. was sent off because of his reaction to it. What was your first feelings when you saw the story? He wasn't sent off for his reaction to it, but I think um, it was his reaction, I think caused what he was feeling, obviously what he was having to go through. What did he do then? I thought he literally I, did the shush sign to the crowd. No, right? no. I think, I think he either, you know, he hit a player in the, in the face or he, he hit him with his arm or something like that. He, you know, went in hard on a tackle or something right, right, like yeah. that. Right, right, yeah. Lost his shit, basically. Yeah. But, yeah. but it was because of what happened. Like, yeah, yeah. It, obviously it was, you know, it was totally um, understandable. Um, yeah, I'm sort of, um, I'm sad that, you know, that is still happening. Yeah. But also not surprised. Like I don't read a story of a black player being racially abused in Spain and I'm not shocked by it anymore, which is a sad thing. You've highlighted Spain now. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it's worse there than perhaps other European countries then? Uh, because Spain has a lot more press, right? Um, then say, I don't know, somewhere like Slovakia or Serbia or Russia, right? Yeah. We read about it more. So I don't know that it's worse. I don't think it is. I know it happens to black players who play uh, in the Russian league, for example. Um, but because, say, you've got Atletico, you've got Real, you've got um, Barcelona, you've got the big Spanish teams, mm -hmm. you just see it more. And there are more uh, non-native Spanish players that go in, particularly sort of Brazilians and things like that, that play for the top top clubs. Um, and so, yeah, I've called out Spain because it happened in Spain, but, uh, you know, you probably come onto this, like, it, you know, when it happens time and time and time again, and there's very little repercussion and there almost is acquiescence to it mm. by the infrastructure, you start to think, well, you know, maybe there's some truth to the fact that there's, there, there is a, there is a, an infrastructure of racism within that country. And I think it's worth highlighting as well, right, that this wasn't like one or two fans in the stadium yeah. saying this term that they were chanting. It was basically the whole stadium, wasn't it? Yeah. That was singing this or chanting yeah. this thing at him. Now, apparently, um, this was... Uh, it's not isolated, by the way. So, so it probably happens every match. Mm. It just the 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 it makes it into newspapers sometimes when it's so significant. So it's not like say ninety five percent of the matches are racism free, and then suddenly this was just a, a one off. It just happens all the time, and the, and it just and it sort of blows up at moments. And this was one of those moments that it blew up because apparently it's happened to him in yeah. in particular over ten times this season. Yeah, and did you know that Spain recently signed uh, some sort of 
uh, um, I can't think of the word, pro not proposal, some kind of like contract thing with Brazil to say that they're going to really clamp down on, on racism um, as two nations. And Brazil have like come out strongly yep. with this and yep. asked for sanctions, yep. asked Spain for sanctions. Yeah. They, they blacked out the uh, thing in Rio, you know, the, what's he called? The, the, the Jesus oh, thing. Right. Oh, they really? blacked it out for a day in uh, solidarity with him. And they're asking for sanctions. What do you think is an appropriate sanction in this place? And do you think an appropriate sanction will work? Firstly, I'm going to just reverse it and ask you what you think an appropriate sanction is because it's not really it's not really for us to think about what the appropriate sanction is because i could say something like penalty 50 point penalty massive fines for the clubs something that sort of hits the clubs but that doesn't change anything mm. um but certainly something more than say one per so i've read somewhere that one person had his season ticket suspended for three years yeah as a result of what one happened one person at one point got a one-year ban um on one of the incidents so i don't know what is right but that is woefully fucking not enough yeah and so it shouldn't be to us to figure out what individual penalties this is a systemic problem so there needs to be there's penalties but there's also that isn't going to fix it like you've got to figure out what yeah, it is that needs to change. Yeah, that's why I made it a two-part question. As yeah. in, what do you think the sanction is? Yeah. And then... What do you think? I think it's difficult because I think, what do you do? You go empty stadiums for a few games and they lose loads of money. I don't think that'll stop the fans um, doing it or chanting it. I think a points deduction. They're in a relegation battle, that Valencia. Yeah, so... Um, like a points sanction, I think would make people really look at what, what I think it would make people do is look at whether they should be uh, overtly racist within a ground. Um, but I don't think it tackles the problem. And I've actually heard like in the past, John Barnes talk quite a lot about this, but he gets quite a lot of stick hmm. from um, a lot of different angles. Cause he says, there's no, like, he's like, there's no, he says there's no point in banning it in stadiums. Because like banning it and stopping it coming into stadiums doesn't make it go away. And he said, and in some ways, it sort of pushes it underground. Would you would you agree with that? I disagree with that. Because mm -hmm. then what? Well, then you're sort of admitting defeat. So so. But he is he is. Let me sorry, just yeah. caveat it by saying yeah. he's not saying well no, just don't bother. Yeah, what's he's he saying we need to do some actual work properly to try and look at why racism. How about both? Exists. How about both? Yeah. How, how about you stop? it being so overtly possible, right? I would say, I, you know, I've been to you know, a few grounds. I say because of the work that's happened in, in the UK that has uh, kind of pushed it out of the terraces, right? So it mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it doesn't, it doesn't mean that people aren't racist. I'm not saying that, yeah, yeah. but what they can't do is overtly do it. It cr starts to address the, um, uh, the, the, options of being more inclusive in grounds, right? So actually yeah. you can start to get a different mix of kind of people coming to the grounds. Now, I imagine a lot of traditional fans will say, well, that's what's changed the nature of like stadiums now. And actually it's not, it's all a bit 
prawn sandwich and a bit vanilla and a bit, you know, and I think some of the big stadiums are accused of it being quite, you know, watered down in terms of atmosphere. But actually, if that starts to bring more inclusion into stadiums because you've taken hard sanctions on zero tolerance on racism, then that's, then that's really important. If you can just uh, wantonly get away with it in stadiums around Europe, then that just continues to feed the frenzy. Like it is something called the broken window syndrome. A guy called Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called The Tipping Point. And uh, he gave all these brilliant act anecdotes about what was the tipping point for change. And he, and he referenced kind of New York in the 70s and 80s was like a lawless place, right? I don't know if you know much about it, but it's absolutely like, crime-ridden, drug-ridden. It was a bad place. It was dangerous. And there was a police commissioner who came up with this notion called the broken windows syndrome. And, and basically there used to be like neighborhoods where if there was a broken window, kids or like, you know, like the youth would like keep throwing um, uh, like rocks at the windows because they're like, well, if it's broken and no one fix it, who cares? Mm. But actually when they started to replace the windows that had an incredible impact and it's, it started to help turn around the city because people had more pride. They said, oh, well, people care about this place now. So actually, if you allow the broken windows to happen, then it's never going to change. And what are some of the sanctions, putting you on the spot a bit here, but what are some of the sanctions in the UK that have worked then? I don't know enough about it, but what I do know is, so I, I think clubs- I think instant clubs, lifetime ban yeah, would instant, happen. instant lifetime ban. I think the clubs feel like they have a lot of, you know, they feel a bit more like they have solidarity behind it. There feels to be um, like, it, like I, th I think the FA seems like it's got more of a backbone than La Liga. Like if you, th I don't know if you kind of wrote down what the La Liga president wrote, but we'll, you know. Yeah, should, um, we, should we go there? Well, yeah. And so I think there, there's just, a, uh, you know, there's a bigger infrastructure around inclusion and stamping out racism. It's still so much work to do. I think there's still gonna be lots of incidents. You know, we saw it ourselves, didn't we, when the three lads missed the penalties um, and what happened as a result of that after uh, World Cup, was it Euros? It's the Euro Euros, final. Yeah, Euro final, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's still loads of work to do outside of the grounds, don't get me wrong. But I think within within the grounds, I think there's been a lot of progress. It certainly feels like it anyway. Because the Spain uh, president or whoever it was has basically come out and sort of implied, well, he sort of brings it on himself a little bit with some of his dancing celebrations and stuff like that. Right? He has implied that, hasn't he? Well, yeah, he's done a bit of whataboutism, right? Yeah. So, you know, what about this? And I called him to two meetings and he didn't show up to them. Why is it Vinicius Jr., a 22-year-old's, responsibility to turn up to meetings with the La Liga president and to kind of defend. And the fact that he sort of basically, you know, he feels like he has to defend La Liga and Spain. And he said, there's only been like nine incidents or something like that, which is absolute bullshit. So I think he is trying to appease who he thinks are the majority audience, not the few, right? So there may be a handful of players that are, uh, not Caucasian, right, mm -hmm. within La Liga. And then in terms of communities, there's probably a handful versus the majority. And I, I, his response is the saddest thing about this whole Do episode. you think they will act as a result of this, though? Well, there seems to be more pressure than norm normal, but Why I think do you it think will that disappear. Is? Why do you think there is more pressure? Because here's one of the reasons I think there is, is, um, and I was listening to Talk Sport this morning, actually, and they had their... Brazilian expert on there. I forget his name, but he's fucking really good to listen to. Um, he said 
it's almost unfortunate that that um, Spain will have their hand moved here because we are reaching the point now where some of the best players in the world, who are players of colour, uh, are going to come out and say, if you don't want racist abuse, don't go and play in Spain because yeah. it's part of the package. It's very, it, I think he has basically called it out, Vinicius Jr. has called it out as... as um, vocally as vociferously as can be done he's basically said football is racist la liga is racist and i'm afraid spain is racist and we talk about it in brazil about how racist this country is so real madrid want to get jude bellingham they want to get uh, mbappe you know big the biggest players in 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 the world and it, I think, you know, it sounded like Bellingham was going to be a shoe-in for Real Madrid. He may still come, you know, but it's really interesting timing. So I think that's the thing. The thing that will make them change is not a noble thing. It's, it's commercial interests. That's what I think will make it change. And just quickly, because I want to pose another question um, that's related to this. If this had have happened in um, an English stadium, yeah. what do you think? I know it's a fucking bit of a difficult rhetorical sort of question yeah what do you think would happen here shall what? i shall i tell you why i'm asking yeah vinicius has come out like you said and essentially said that as a result of this we know that spain is a bit of a of, of a racist country i remember i couldn't give you the date but it was a couple of years ago um fairly recently although i seem to say things are fairly recently and then i look and it's 10 years ago but i think it's in the last two or three years stormzy said Britain is racist, didn't he? He said, Britain is racist. And then people, and then somebody said, you think Britain is actually racist? And he said, yeah, 100%. And then people took that as him saying Britain is 100% racist, which was wrong. Yeah. He was saying, yeah, I 100% believe that Britain is racist. Yeah. So do we get a little bit like pointing away at other countries like Spain? Are we any better? Well, I think you're conflating two things, right? Are our nations racist? Are there is there you know prolific racism? Let's, both do, let's go there first. Do you think in do you think Britain is is racist? I think there is uh, still a lot of racism in this country. Yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I think uh, you see it from uh, you see it from very overt. Um, experiences like we witnessed there that happened in Spain, but then you, you, it's a lot of insidious stuff that we've talked a lot about on this podcast. Yeah. Um, do I think every Briton is racist? No, of course not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do I think large swathes of um, the country are not racist? Yeah, of course. Do I think that there's a lot of underground racism that we don't just don't hear about? Yeah, loads and loads and loads. Yeah. And then there's just stuff that's bubbling on the surface. It's always inherent. It's in the media. It's everywhere. So it's not a surprise. Yeah, because of that reaction that was on Twitter after the Euros yeah. was probably not too dissimilar. If you collated everybody that made comments on Twitter together, you'd fill that stadium in Spain, wouldn't you? Yeah. Oh yeah. Do you know what I mean? So when you look two at, or three times over. When, yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. when you look at it like that, you have yeah. to start to say, well, hang on a minute. Is it just as bad here? But it's a little bit more. It is just we sort as of bad. know that you can't, you know, because we have lifetime bans now. Yeah. I think that would happen. Yeah. Yeah. If that happened in England, what I would like to think would happen, and I do believe would happen, is they would use all of the camera evidence that they could, and anybody caught on camera chanting in that way would get a lifetime ban. I do think that would happen in England. Yeah. Um, 
But does that mean that we're any less? No, racist? that's what I'm saying. I don't. Yeah. I don't. I think. I think there are two different things that um, you have to recognize that you know inherently we are still a racist country. What I feel like, and I don't know the stats, but I imagine we are. Uh, more of a, a mixed and blended nation than they are in Spain. I think there's probably um, less less migration percentage, uh, you know, uh, mixed than we have in our country in our country. Um, so I think there's just a uh, there's more pressure to um, to transform culture here than there may be in sort of countries within Europe, Spain being one, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So it's still very, very nationalistic in many ways. And I mean that in a good way as well. I don't mean just in the negative sense. There's a lot of strong national pride. I'm not saying every Spanish person is racist either. Like, you know, it is, um, but what I think is there is an inherent hard wiring around nationality that just um, allows those really right-wing, extreme right-wing views to kind of come out and there seems to be very little, um, you know, repercussion yeah. For, yeah, yeah. for being public. So on that, if we move towards like, we look, I think we can talk about sanctions that you could bring into a stadium that were certainly like you've explained, I think really, really well, why those sanctions within a stadium could have a positive impact, net impact long-term, yeah? In terms of stamping it out, bringing in... Um, I mean, I always bring it back to when you t said that you've never been to an England game because it don't really quite feel right to you. And I was a bit like, fuck, what? Like, couldn't, almost couldn't believe it. And that really humanised the issue for me when you said that. But I guess if you're making sure that it's stamped out and that makes you feel more confident that you're not going to hear shit that's going to make you feel uncomfortable, you're much more likely to uh, cut, find yourself in a football stadium, right? And then that kind of will help to drive the change that we would, would need to see, right? Am I making sense of what I'm saying? Yeah. Partly, yeah, it's not yeah. going to solve the problem. Yeah. But it's certainly like a, a, a positive thing. If we look at more of a sort of like uh, the approach that we would need to take to really start to tackle it. And that's, I'm, think, I'm thinking more about what we would do to tackle it in society nowadays. What do you think are some of the major barriers that we face that um, make it difficult to, to really tackle this problem? I mean, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I don't think you're born racist. Mm. You don't born hating, you learn hating. Yeah. And so much of that is obviously down to, you know, the environment in which you're raised. So it may be generational and it's passed down and, and you know, whatever. But so much of it is fed into by um, the lack of investment in people, right? So lack of investment in children, lack of investment in lower social mobility communities. So it just feeds the problem, right? So you you think about the others, right? So you go, oh, I've, got, I've got nothing. I can't pay my bills. Therefore we blame them. And then the media feeds that. So I think education is kind of the only way that you're gonna kind of get through it. Um, but I, I'm hopeful also that, you know, we, we're sort of seeing the end of um, we're seeing the end of the boomer generation, seeing, you know, we're, we're, we're emerging out of the generation X. I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, whilst there are still lots of millennials and Gen Zers that, uh, you know, harbour these views, I feel like there is hopefully a shift in this generation that's emerging 
around kind of culture inclusivity, a bit more kind of connectedness. Um, I'm not naive. I know that, you know, these things don't just disappear, in, you know, just because there's a changing of the guard doesn't mean that the, you know, centuries old practices shift. Um, but I think there's, uh, there's, there's, hope that you know the, the emerging generations are going to you know drive yeah. different change i would say at the risk of being naive here if i was to look at the environments in which i first went to work in in when so what are we going back maybe 15 to 20 years here um there's been huge strides now again that's not to say that it's gone but there has been huge strides. Some of the things that I would have heard within the working environment that were seen as relatively normal and, you know, from, for example, from racist jokes that were just text about normally when I first went into the working world, they would have been read out within work cultures normally, pretty normally, and you would have been seen as a little bit of a party pooper if you got offended by a joke like that. Like, I, I think in most work cultures that I can think of now, I mean, that would be seen as obscene. You know, I think of some of the younger, the, the younger sort of startups that I go into where it is a younger generation. Uh, well, I, 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 I think that's true. And I think if you think about, you know, cosmopolitan city areas, that's true, right? Startups are modern emerging businesses probably out of like uh, commercial centers, London, Manchester, Bristol, whatever. But if you're talking about say, you know, a mechanics in, sorry, that's probably a little bit stereotypical, but you know, mechanics in do a village, there's, there's, there's probably still a lot of that that still goes on. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. But um, I mean, I do a lot of, I, I work with a lot of like construction companies as well, which is, uh, uh, which is where you might think that there would potentially be more of it, right? Is that what you're saying, yeah? Uh, not, I know it's making a bit of an assumption. Not but. even big companies. It's the smaller companies that make up so much of our workforce that actually it could be anything from a five to 10 person company where actually it's just, uh, it, it. they don't really kind of, um, you, you know, they don't kind of... Uh, What's the word? Like, I won't say not obey, but they don't like run themselves by the yeah, laws yeah. of the land in the same way. So then they're going to be less probably bothered by, you know, what is kind of the, you know, the equality act now, but what used to be kind of race relations. Yeah, you know, yeah. But, and I would say, though, even if you went into like a, a working man's pub now, like from 15 years ago, again, not to say that it's gone, but I would say that there's been huge strides made, again, at the risk of being naive here. Am I being naive? It's just you're smiling no, I, at me. I'm, I, I don't think you're being naive. I just think you've got a very different experience to a lot of people that might be that might be experiencing it. So you might think it, and you might think, "Oh, this has changed," and it probably is true to some degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I will walk into a pub, and I've uh, we talked about this. I have a very different experience to to you. Uh, do in, you in still one. get that? And we're really running out of time here. But do yeah. you still get that? In are there many pubs that you could walk into now and still not? I, I don't mean like if I walked into a real local pub, everyone turns it. You know, not not that I don't fucking know anyone in here. This yeah, dodgy. yeah. I mean, just a normal like London. Yeah, yeah. Not def like not really not in London, no, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's when you go outside of the major cities that's when you start thinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and it's those ones, right? So if you think about that one that was in Grey's in Essex, where you know they they proudly put their 
their gollywog dolls and then the police raided them do you know about this story no so they this is pub in greys um they had these proudly put these gollywog dolls on i think the pub the pub landlord had ties to like the far right then the police raided them took it down told them to take it down and then um they defi defied it put some back on and then what was brilliant is that the breweries um basically said we're not going to work with you anymore and they had to shut down you know what so that's what, how it, that's how it happens by and, the way but that's good that yeah. that happens yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, and i know we've got a shutdown here but i'm just like reflecting on my own like because i said I, I, like i purposely recognize sometimes when i might be being a bit naive and bring it on purpose to, yeah. to have it like uh to have it kind of corrected in that way and when you have it corrected, when you say that, my first thought is, fucking hell, man, I can't believe that's still happening. Yeah. But then we haven't got time to talk about it. But when you talk about like privilege, I guess when we like, that's what privilege, how it shows up in my life is when I don't fucking, that's not even on my radar. And if, if I'm not careful, if I'm not careful as a white person, yeah, I can start, you know what you talked about with um, uh, like the protest fatigue and that, if I'm not careful, I can get like, oh, come on, man, it's fucking, it's not, you're looking for it when it's not there. And my head will go there a little bit. And then it's having conversations like this that bring my head back round. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, at, yeah. At the risk I don't of think making myself sound fucking no, racist. I don't like, think it's naive at all, actually. It's it's because we create the space to have these yeah, conversations. Man. And it's just a reminder that even though we think on the surface, things are moving forward, they are. There's, there's a lot of stuff that still hasn't happened below the surface of the water. The, yeah. so the, you, only, you know the term, the tip of the iceberg? It yeah, means yeah. that there's a load of ice below the surface of the water. And that's, you know. And that's, what, where, we, that's where the work needs to be done. Yeah, exactly. Mate, this has been brilliant. Um, really enjoyed it and look forward to the next one. Thanks again for listening to 115 Miles with Josh Connolly and Hassan Kyle.